appreciate the invitation to come and preach. Real privilege. I just hope you can understand me this morning. I don't know if you've had a real genuine Aussie come and preach to you before. It's amazing um, when you uh, start to travel here. Uh, just the, the, it seems like Australians have a reputation. It has escaped Australia and got here. And it's an interesting thing to me what people um, note you for. And uh, in the hotel we were staying, got in the lift the other day, my wife and I, a couple little kids there and their dad. And uh, this guy said to me, where are you from? And uh, I said, I'm from Australia. And this little kid looked at me with a squint up, screwed up face. And she says, oh, do you eat Vegemite? <laughs> I said, no, I've never touched the stuff. It's made out of ground up black beetles. She looked at me like, Ugh. But you know, it's an amazing thing that, you know, here it is, Australia, they put Australia with Vegemite. They put Australia with big knives. I don't know what that means. I've never seen the movie. It's an amazing thing to me how reputation escapes. And there are certain reputations as you look into Scripture and the characters that we have in Scripture, certain reputations have escaped the church world. That there are a lot of things, you know, my dad, he is not a saved man and uh, he, every time he wants to talk to me about religion, he says, um, so what about the Catholics? And you'll know you're in for trouble. Because as far as he's concerned, all religious people are a bunch of hypocrites that want to steal your money. But you know what? It's an amazing thing to me when you start to go out into the world, doesn't matter where you go, and you mention the word Samaritan, people will say, he's the good guy. Because that man's reputation has gone before him. It's escaped the church, it's escaped the religious world, and it's an amazing thing to me, wherever you go, that the moment you mention a Samaritan, they, people think of him as good, and it was an interesting thing to me when I began to look into that text Nowhere in that text does it actually say he's the Good Samaritan, yet everybody knows him as the Good Samaritan. Why? Because this man had a genuine life, a real reputation, and I want you to know that has escaped and it's touched the world. And that reputation needs to be in every one of us this morning as preachers and as ministers of the gospel. Can you say amen? And let's have a look here at a very, very familiar text. Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. It says, In that hour, sorry, verse 25, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to them, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered rightly, do this and you'll live. But he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wound, wounded him and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road and when he saw him he passed on the other side. Likewise the Levite when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And so he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I'll repay you. 
So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go, do likewise. I want to um, think with you for a few moments about this text this morning and think about firstly the seemingly ridiculous question that this lawyer asked. This lawyer has come to Jesus and the Bible says he tested him. When you start to think about that, the actual reason or the motivation behind this question uh, could be varied. Different commentators say different things. We won't even really worry ourselves with that. But more so, we want to look at the question. Think about it this morning. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that term, eternal life, for a Jew was a very common term. And it didn't just mean life without end. What it meant was fullness of life. It meant a well-rounded life, a well-orbed life, a prosperous life, a rich life, a satisfying life even. And here's this lawyer comes to him and he says literally, Jesus, what must I do to have a, a full life, a fulfilled life, a satisfying life? That's a good question. And I believe after you've been in the ministry a while, uh, you can ask yourself that question, depending on where you're at, is that you can be working for God, you can be living for God and things aren't quite going maybe how you'd like and you find yourself involved in all sorts of things, sometimes in things that you shouldn't be involved in and you find yourself in a place where you start to wonder what really is satisfying. And we can ask these sorts of questions and you have people come and ask these sorts of questions to you. And there's some incredible wisdom that we see in God right here because Jesus turns to him when he asks this question and he doesn't give him an answer. So this is a lawyer. In your, in your column there it says he's an expert in the law and Jesus says to him, instead of answering his question, he says, um, listen, um, you have the law, what's your reading of it? In other words, how do you read this? Now, to me, there's some great wisdom for us counselling people because you find something that most people know the answers to their questions. And often what we just need to do is, oh, I do this all the time, so what do you think? It's like Pastor Warner was preaching last night. People come with all their just spaghetti of problems and everything else, spider webs, and they present them all to you and you sit there going, well, I don't know, what do you think? Because, you know, like Pastor Warner said, you can tell them 15 times, but unless they actually get it, it doesn't make any difference. And so here's Jesus. He points this back to him in great wisdom. And he says, how do you read this? And we have to note there is an instantaneous answer that reveals two things to us. Firstly, it reveals a correct answer. Jesus says, you've answered rightly. And the second thing, very simple, that it reveals to us, is that this man already knew the answer to the question he was asking. He already knew it. What in the world is the point of even asking the question? And Jesus simply points it straight back to him and how often this is the case, that we ask questions that we already have the answers to. You ever notice that when you come to conference, uh, you know, you often go away from the conference and somebody will say, oh, how was the conference? And we always go, oh, it was great. It was back to basics. It was back to what we already knew. We came to conference with all these questions. Oh God, what am I doing? What am I meant to be doing? Are we going to make it, God? And you know, preacher after preacher came up and told you what you already knew. It's true. Why do we do that? The reason is often we're just not happy with the answer we already have. 
This is the case with a lot of church people who want fullness of life. They want complete, satisfying life. They ask questions when all the time they know what the answer is. They're aware of the answer. You get these folks, you know, I've got a couple of them in my church. They, they like to go to every revival meeting, every, everything that is going on. They, it's like I call them revelation junkies. It's like, you know, to them, it's like they, they just want more answers, more answers, more answers, but the answers are never worked out in life. And what happens, you see them, they'll come back from a revival and you'll say, oh, how was it? Oh, it was awesome, Pastor. We haven't heard preaching like that before. And you should have heard him, Pastor, as he just laid it in and, oh, man, it was just such a rush. We were feeling it. It was awesome. Oh, we can't wait to go back tomorrow night. But this goes on year in and year out, but there is no changed life. There's no growth. How come? Because they're getting answers, answers, revelation all the time, but it's not worked out in life. And I want you to know that revelation that is not worked out in life turns into religion. Because we know the answers so often, but how often they just don't work out. What happens here? Jesus says, you've answered rightly. He gives him this great instruction. He says, do this and you'll live. It's amazing because this man instantly turns around and the text says, 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 but he, wanting to justify himself, bad start. When God gives you an answer and says, do it, and you go, but. And this happens all the time. You know, again, go back to the counselling table. How often you provide a simple answer and it's, oh, but you don't understand. But, but what do you really mean? Well, it's pretty simple. Love your neighbour. This man looking to justify himself, it says here, he's, he's looking to pronounce himself righteous. He's looking to be freed, if you like, from the conviction that's coming upon his heart. And he asks this question, who is my neighbour? You know, as far as I can tell, this guy's pretty intelligent. He's a lawyer. Well, who is my neighbour? You get paid a hundred bucks an hour to ask questions like that? Unbelievable. But here's something that, you know, we need to uh, consider is that the grace of God cuts right in here. You'd think that Jesus said, mate, go on, on your bike. But instead, Jesus actually tells him. He takes time. Here's the grace of God to us. God comes to us time and time again with grace. Did you know that? That when we're trying to justify ourselves, pleading stupidity, that he comes to us again and again with grace, and he's like, okay, it's like this. And Jesus begins to bring this parable to bear, and he shows this man what it is to be a neighbour and who his neighbour is. And one of the first things that we can learn from this is that if you want to find out who your neighbour is, just be neighbourly. And all these people that say, oh, pastor, I haven't got any friends. Everybody hates me. No, no, that's not true. You haven't met everybody yet. No, it's a strange thing, isn't it? You want to have friends? Show yourself friendly. Want to find out who your neighbour is? Show yourself neighbourly. As you look at these different people in this story here, we've got the man by the roadside. The Bible says that he's been set upon by robbers. And you've got to note something here. These are just not thieves. They are robbers. And as you do a little study on the word robbers, they steal with violence, but don't just attack your goods, but attack your person. 
Hence it says here in our text, they left him half dead. Now to me, great illustration. Because we've got roadside victims all around us. You don't have to look at a car wreck to find a roadside victim. People that are half dead are everywhere. Thanks to sin. Why? Because sin brings on death. Can you say amen? There are no shortage of roadside victims. They're everywhere. Just look next door uh, from where you live. Look down the street. Look anywhere you like. There are roadside victims everywhere that sin has brought decay in their lives. It's worked out into their marriages, into their children, into their uh, employment situations. There is decay because of sin. You know, people say, who is my neighbor? My goodness, they're everywhere. People that are half dead are everywhere. Why? Because the world's filled with sinners. And sin brings decay. Then you've got the priest and the Levite. They're an interesting couple of fellows. They are the professional goodies of the story. These are the ones that Jesus really focuses as he speaks on to this lawyer. He's identifying this lawyer with these two men. These are the guys that have the truth in their hand, but they're too busy to exercise the truth they possess. One man said this, the greatest treason in the world is to know to do good and not do it. James says it much similar. He says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and, not do it, and does not do it is sin unto him. And I reckon this is where the world's going wrong, is that so many people know what to do. This, this Western Christian society is unbelievable to me. I don't know about you, but when I walk in a Christian bookshop these days, it flips me out. It, you know, it leaves your Walmart for dead. It's glossy everything. You can buy anything for anything. Yet people don't give it, you know, two hoots whether people are walking off into hell or not. Yet they're reading everything, watching everything, listening to everything and doing nothing. So easy to just pass on by the roadside victims like our priest and our Levite. I find this in my own life from time to time. You become so busy being the pastor that you forget about people. Does anyone know what that's like? You know, in Australia, more and more laws are coming on us from the government. There is that much paperwork, taxation, rubbish, that they could bury you in paper for months. You'd never leave your office. It gets like that. And then you've got this one other man here, this Samaritan. And this is his neighbourhood. And here is this guy, he ministers to this need that he sees. And he moves on and then uh, pays for this man to recover. The thing I really want to touch on this morning is that motivation that was in this man's heart, this Samaritan. Because the real issue when you're talking about roadside victims reaching people for Jesus Christ is who's going to pay. That's the real issue. And the moment that you pull over to assist in any sort of way with people, you'll be called to personal cost. And these religious men of our story, these professionals, they were paid to be religious. They didn't have time for this. They were aware of the cost. Yet this Samaritan, we understand, he pulls over. He begins to pay out of his personal life. And what is the payment for you and I? It's usually our life. It's usually our time. It's usually our money. It's the amazing thing about the Christian life. Did you know it really will interfere with you? A.W. Tozer said... The cross will interfere. A lot of people don't want to be interfered with. We want to live a private life. Do not disturb. And here the question comes, 
to our minds, so often when we're confronted by a roadside victim, is that if I stop for this person, what will it cost me? Who knows that's real? If I stop, what is this going to cost me? Because we don't want so often for anything to interfere with us and what we personally have. That's an amazing thing how selfish we can get. You know, I remember a little while back, I had a guy come out to church, brought his, brought his wife and two kids with him. And uh, he was an interesting character. He's a New Zealander. And uh, he came into our Sunday morning service and he sat there. He was just li- you know, listening to everything. He came up to me after the service. He didn't respond to the altar call. He came up to me after the service. He said, this is inspirational. I said, that's wonderful, uh, but you need to get saved. He's like, yeah. But he didn't. And that night he came back again, Sunday night service, brought his wife, family again, sat there, he's into it. But again, he wouldn't respond. And I saw one of the guys talking to him from the church, one of the leaders in the church, and he was explaining to him about, you know, uh, what, what, the, what the service is all about. And he said, you know, and, and, and the worship service is this, and this is what we do in the worship service, and then we, we have announcements, and then we have the offering, and the offerings for this. And then the pastor preaches. And then we have the altar call. And the altar call is where you can say, I want to give my life to Jesus. You can walk down the front and publicly declare, I'm giving my life to Jesus. This guy's going, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, okay. But again, he didn't respond in any way. You know, on Monday, I had a real busy Monday. And 12 o'clock, this, this guy rings me up. How you going, bro? What's happening? And he says, I want to become one of the faith. That's wonderful. Great thing. I said, so when do you want to do this? I said, listen, I'll come and see you wherever you are. He said to me, oh, listen, no, what about at 5.30? I'm thinking, no, I'm not 5.30. 5.30? I've got things on, 5.30. But we're talking about a guy who wants to get saved. I cannot believe this in myself. I'm just thinking, what am I saying? Yeah, sure, I'll be there. You know, the amazing thing is I went down to the church at 5.30 and to me, this is one of those moments that Pastor Warner was talking about last night. I came out of the church, I got there at 25 past 5 and uh, his car is not there, but there's another van there. And there's a woman in the van with a couple of kids and I'm thinking, I wonder who who she is as I was walking to the door of the church and and all of a sudden other cars are coming in. This is Monday. It's not Sunday night. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden I've got a car, cars coming in, there's people, and next thing this guy drives in, he, you know, he's big grin on his face. I'm thinking, my goodness, what is going on here? And I open the door of the church and these people are walking into the church. I'm thinking, oh, what's happening? I said to this guy, Carlson, what, oh, what's going on? He goes, oh, I'm going public. The amazing thing is, as I'm standing there in the floor of the church talking to this guy, his kids have gone into the church and are setting up chairs. They were there yesterday. They set up chairs. I've got visitors on a Monday afternoon. And so I'm there and and this guy Carl says, are we going to sing a couple of songs? Hey, let's sing a couple of songs, you know. But you know, it's an amazing thing because 
I sang a couple of songs with this crowd of people there, preached in a minute and a half sermon on salvation. Carl got saved in tears. That's amazing. But here's me, here's me thinking, 5.30 on a Monday? We don't have church at 5.30 on a Monday. Self, man, it's right there. A little while back, again, to, to illustrate to you how close self is to us. That we are there so concerned about what it costs us. I was coming back from preaching a conference with um, Pastor Rick Creamers in PNG about 12 months ago. And uh, it was one of, again one of those moments I was trying to schedule my flights to get back just when I wanted to get back. And of course it never works. And so I ended up flying 14 hours around the country, getting back into Perth uh, in Western Australia, then having to drive three hours home. Problem is I got into Perth at 12 o'clock at night. I'm absolutely trashed. This is on a Saturday night. I'm, you know, Sunday school's on in the morning, service, the whole thing. I'm thinking, I just want to get to bed. I'm screaming down the, 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 the highway, uh, heading home on my drive. Uh, you know, I'm stopping to get coffee. That's, you just don't want to drink this stuff. You just smell it. It's enough. You just sit there go... <laughs> and, you, you know, you, and I'm just sort of cruising along into this and uh, I'm about probably, I don't know, maybe three quarters an hour from home. Uh, I just want to get home, go to bed... I've got church in a few hours. And all of a sudden, out of the dark, here's this young woman standing in the middle of the, middle of the highway just waving her arms frantically, freaking out. I'm thinking, my goodness, what, what in the world? Don't you understand you should be home in bed? <laughs> As I look across the island, there's this small vehicle that has been rolled about half a dozen times and it's facing back towards where I was coming from. I zoomed around, went back up there, and there I am, I'm confronted with this young girl who's unscathed, she's just in shock. I said, is there anybody else here? She said, there's another two young people in the car. And uh, as I approach the car, I'm freaking out. This has been my greatest nightmare, is finding somebody on the road like that when there's no help. And uh, I remember going over this car, there's another young girl in the front seat that was driving. She was unconscious, and there was a young guy in the back. And he was not in good shape. He's only 16 years old. And, uh, you know, for me, I'm thinking to myself, uh, okay, first day, I'd like to say that I just sort of leapt in and went, shumbo, and, you know, and everything happened. But I didn't do that. It just didn't happen. But what I did do is I, I knew a few little things. I remember reading somewhere that a lot of people die in car accidents simply because they can't breathe. And so I thought, well, what I'll do first is I'll check if anyone's, you know, maybe got a tongue stuck down their throat or something, and we'll get them breathing. And uh, you know, the girl, she's breathing, okay. Over in the back seat, this guy, yeah, he's breathing, but this guy's drowning in his own blood. This guy's head was popped from here right down to here, just popped open like a grape. And I tell you, it was just heavy duty. He was lying in the back seat. Uh, he was literally just bleeding into a, 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 like a, I think it was his jumper or something like that. And there was a big pool of blood, and this guy's like drowning in his own blood. And I'm thinking, good idea to shift the jumper. You know, as I started to shift the jumper to stop this guy drowning in his own blood, I shocked myself again. That instantly I began to think, watch out for the blood, you could get AIDS. <laughs> but you know, as I was doing that, I thought, you, you are so disgusting. What a nasty person you are. That self could all of a sudden just rise up and see a life just disappear right in front of you. Because I don't want to get AIDS. That shocked me, you know, about me. 
And we need to know us, like Pastor Warner said, we need to know who we are. We need to realise how close self dwells. Then I'm thinking, I need to, you know, they put blankets on people who are in shock, it's a freezing cold night, and I'm thinking, what can I find? My coat. Oh no, it'll get blood on it. We're, we're, you know, it's amazing. I don't know about you, but I get shocked with myself. That myself is this far from stopping people living. Let's get back to our ministry. Our self is that close from stopping people living. It's right there every moment, just waiting to rise up. And it's an interesting thing because as you start to think about our text again, this motivation that caused this man to stop. See, what happens to us is when we start to pull over, the first thought again that goes through our mind is what will happen to me if I pull over? That's the thing that'll stop us. What will happen to me? Concern for self. But here we see again this motivation of our Samaritan is a motivation of compassion. It's an interesting word that Jesus puts here, he says that this man had compassion and compassion is more than just feeling a little pity, a little sympathy. You know, sympathy in itself means to enter into someone else's sufferings. It means to sort of feel what they're feeling. And I used to sort of think that, you know, sympathy or compassion was just simply to feel what somebody else is going through. I remember one time I was preaching a revival for a guy and I was preaching at night and I was re-roofing his church during the day. And I was up there restructuring the roof of his church and and uh, most of the people in his church have no skills and, and I'm up there with a, you know, playing the carpenter, that's what I am by trade and I'm, I'm sitting there with a hammer I'm, I'm leaning over a rafter, I've got three inch nails I'm swinging flat swing problem is I've been pastoring too long and I'm not as good as I used to be and that, that, I had about seven of these people just standing there watching me and I'm like, you know, getting even more nervous and I just went whack and hit myself right in the finger and instantly watching all these people just go... They were, they were feeling what I was feeling. But they were no good to me at all. See, compassion is more than that. There's a great definition of compassion from the Webster's Dictionary. It says this, Compassion, a sympathetic consciousness of someone other than yourself's distress. Listen to this. So you're feeling it. You're conscious of someone's distress. It says yet together with a desire to alleviate it. That's different. You can just go, or you can run and get me some ice. <laughs> Getting the ice is compassion. Because you've felt it, but you are desiring to alleviate my pain. See, compassion is not just knowing something. It's not just feeling something. Compassion is doing something. This is why it says, you know, when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. He was moved with compassion and healed them. He didn't just go, oh, poor things. Oh. No, he healed them. He did something. You pick this up in Scripture everywhere. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing to be cleansed. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep having no shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. 
Notice this. It's not just pity. But he is Jesus moved with compassion. He reaches out to meet the need, to heal them, to liberate them, to enlighten them. He's doing something. It's an interesting term, this, and I like to do word studies. I like to try and get the colours on words and try and get some, you know, just, just some little slants on things. And, and I was looking at this, this term, compassion. I thought, I'll find out what this word compassion means. And uh, I look up the word compassion there and up it comes and I thought moved with compassion. I wonder what the word moves means in this text. I wonder what sort of emphasis, what, what sort of colour it's going to put on this word compassion. I looked up the word moved and it was exactly the same word as the word compassion. Then I all of a sudden discovered that compassion means moved with compassion. In other words, if you're not moved, you don't have compassion. It's just like, you know, we think about forgiveness. I did a little word study back in um, Psalms that talks about in Psalms 86 verse 5. It says, Oh, the Lord is good and ready to forgive and abundant all in mercy to all those who call upon his name. Same thing. Go back, find the word forgive. Find out what that means. Go to this, this word ready, looking for again the colour and find out the word ready isn't even there. I'm thinking, my goodness, is this Jehovah's Witness Bible? You know, I've been ripped off. The word's not there in my concordance. The word ready, oh, I mean, all of a sudden I go back to this word forgiveness and I find that the word forgiveness, the definition for forgiveness, is ready to forgive. Think about that. People say to me, oh, listen, Pastor, oh, you know, I'm forgiving, but I'm just not ready at the moment. No, 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 don't fool yourself. You're not forgiving at all. Because if you're not ready to forgive... Because that's what forgiveness is. You are ready to forgive. You ever get your kids when they fill up a glass full of Coke or something like that and they sit there and they, they, they're pouring it out? Right? And it's amazing, the miracles that happen with kids pouring Coke is that they can pour a Coke and it actually sits above the glass. You ever see them do that? They actually fill it to the point where it's actually sitting, if you have a close look, it's sitting above the glass. And what happens is the moment you just touch the edge, it just flows off. You ever done that? You ever do strange things out like, like that? I used to do that when I was on LSD, I used to sit there going, wow. But you know what? That is what forgiveness is really all about. It's like God's forgiveness is brimmed up to overflowing. It's sitting there, just, just, it's like hanging in air and the moment you touch God, the moment you call upon him, you're just touching like the hem of his garment and all of a sudden virtue, power, is released from that glass, from him, into your life. Can I tell you something? Compassion should be exactly the same thing. Is that our hearts are so filled with the compassion of God that need touches the hem of our garment, if you like, that touches the hem of our lives and our lives would literally flow into those places of need. And anything less than that is not compassion. We're just feeling things where we really need to be doing some things. See, what it comes down to is that we're always worried about what is going to happen to me. Where it should be is what's happening to you really does matter to me. 
That's the way it should be gender in. It's not, you know, if I pull over and, you, and to touch your life, what's going to happen to me? But if I don't pull over, what's going to happen to you? That should be our lives. Think about Jesus. Here's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And no doubt it was a struggle, you know, facing the cross, everything he was about to face. But, you know, there's no doubt there, there were moments there flickered through where Jesus was thinking about what would happen to him in those ensuing hours. But you know what? When you think about Jesus, no doubt those things flashed. I'll tell you something, I really believe it was not just Jesus sitting there going, boy, what will happen to me? But I think he was thinking, if I don't do this, what will happen to them? What will happen to us? See, this is the essence, this is the spirit of Christianity, isn't it? This is, this is Jesus himself. He is not concerned about what happened to him. He gave up his reputation, it says in Philippians. He came down to earth. He submitted himself to death, the death of the cross. This is what he did for us. And this is what we're called to do ourselves. This is the life we're called to live. See, the issue is, who's going to pay? Who's going to pay for the roadside victims? Who's going to pay to reach nations for Jesus? Who's going to pay? Jesus says, do this. He said, live this life. Gives this wonderful example. He says, do this and live. Do this and live. We want fullness of life. We want a well-orbed life, a rounded life. He says, do this. Be a compassionate person. Give of yourself. There's some expectations that come as you look at this. Jesus turns this round to this lawyer and I believe there's an expectation there that he would be moved to go and touch somebody else's life, to discover who his neighbour was, to find wonderful fulfilment in that. You know, that motivation of compassion really has been sapped from our society big time to me by self-pity. You know what self-pity is? You think about this, pity, sympathy, compassion. Compassion is to see somebody else's need and pour what you have into their need. Let's reverse that, self-pity. Now we make everybody aware of what my need is and I want you to pour your resource into my life. That's where so many people live today. Everybody's telling you what they need. Oh, Pastor, but you just don't understand. I'm like this. We need this. We haven't got this together yet. Where we need to be giving out. And self-pity is sucking, I'm telling you, it's sucking dry the power of the church. There's an expectation on us that we would stop. We'd stop for every roadside victim. Today there's an unwillingness, an amazing unwillingness to help. You know, I um, was blown away a little while ago. I was just about to go to bed. It was probably about quarter to 12 at night. I was just about to get into bed and um, I heard this... And I'm thinking, Mike, that, that sounded like someone screaming for help. My wife goes, no, it was a cat. I said, oh, I'm sure that was someone screaming. No, nah, no, nah, it was a cat. And so, you know, I looked out the window and there was this, this guy, he's about six foot four, long hair, tattoos all over, he's huge, and he's dragging a woman down our street by the hair. And every so often he'd stop and he'd just start punching her when she'd start screaming. 
Wouldn't it be real easy to go, nah, it's just a cat. And again, I'd like to tell you I raced out there and went, come on, buddy. But instead, I got my little cell phone and I punched in the cop's number. I went outside and I followed him down the street talking to the police. And as soon as the guy was aware I was there, he sort of, you know, let up on the girl and I followed them around and, and, and uh, communicated to the police. But the other thing that blew my mind is that there was not one other person in our whole street, and they'd done the whole length of the street because I know where they live. And not one other person in our whole street even bothered to have a look. There's a real unwillingness to help. And again, like I say, I'd love to say I went and took the guy on. But I was not that stupid. There needs to be something in us that says what happens to you really matters to me. There's got to be a realisation that this is going to cost us. It's going to cost me. It's going to cost you. And we have to get down to uh, the realities of what it really means to live for Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of, a lot of people you know, think, oh, you guys pray too much. You, you guys at the potter's house, you know, every morning you're encouraged to be at prayer before every service. You know, you're encouraged to be at prayer. You guys are legalistic, all this prayer, 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 prayer. And you know, after a while you start to think, oh, you know, man, you know, I suppose I could be doing something else with my time. Yeah, you could sleep. But listen, you know, if I pray, we could easily think, well, what will happen to me if I do? But ask yourself this question, if you don't pray, what will happen to them? Oh, you know, if I evangelise, if I go and witness to somebody, oh, what will happen to me? It's like brother, brother Marx was saying yesterday morning, bearing the reproach of Christ, what will happen to me? Instantly that thought comes to us. What's going to happen to me if I do this? What's going to happen if I tell people about Christ? What's going to happen if I evangelise? Well, tell me this, what will happen to them if you don't? Now we're called to set an example, which means self-discipline, doesn't it? You know, getting hold of yourself here. Oh, you know, it doesn't really matter, does it, Pastor? Of course it does. Oh, but come on, I've really got it together. It doesn't really matter if I'm, you know, punctual. It doesn't really matter if I, you know, really just live a super clean life and a good example for the rest of the congregation, does it, Pastor? Because I don't really need to because I, I mean, you know, I've got a good heart. Well, listen, what will happen to them if you don't set a good example? You know and I know that, you know, if you, the example you set, everybody seems to live just under it. What's going to happen to them if you decide to drop the ball? Tell me that, Pastor. What, what, you know, this is the thing that blows my mind about people that have stood before congregations, preached the gospel, and all of a sudden they just turn away, they go back to an old lifestyle... Don't you ever think, you know, I've had a guy say to me a little while ago, he says, what would it take you to leave the fellowship? Well, here's an interesting question. I said to him, don't you feel responsibility for anybody? What about the people that look to you as an example? What about the people that, you know, that you've been preaching to, that you've been speaking to for years on end? I said, do you feel anything for those people? You just, you just turn because of what you want to do? What about them? Good question, isn't it? So here the end of our text here, it says, 
Jesus brings these incredible words. He says, after this whole parable, he says, go and do likewise. I don't know if you noticed that before, but nothing changed from the beginning before the parable started to the end. When this guy came with the right answer, Jesus says, you've answered rightly. Do it and you'll live. When the guy turned around to justify the whole scene, Jesus gives him the great big parable and then he says to him, now do it. Nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. Go do likewise. I tell you, so often we're like this lawyer. We come with our questions that we know the answer. The answers come to us and nothing really has changed. If we want to live a satisfying life, go and do likewise. Express the compassion that God's put in your own heart. Put self aside. In our comfortable lives, it means being willing to be uncomfortable. It means be willing to get involved with people, really involved with them. People that you'll probably never understand. People that sometimes don't even like you. Let's not worry about what's happening to us if we stop. But what's going to happen to them if we don't? Praise God. Let's welcome our brother Bob Mann this morning.